a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. Glad you're with me on the program today. We're going to be taking a look at uh, what's going on in Oregon, where a uh, federal trial has been underway this week, challenging the constitutionality of Measure 114. That's that uh, ballot initiative that was approved by less than 51% of Oregon voters uh, last November. This uh, not only establishes a pistol purchase permitting process, i say that five times fast, but also a, a ban on so-called large capacity magazines. U.S. District Judge Karen Immergut is uh, overseeing this trial. She previously declined to enter an injunction uh, against Measure 114. Um, her preliminary ruling was that magazines aren't arms that are protected by the Constitution or the Second Amendment anyway. So uh, you could ban uh, five-round magazines if you wanted. No, no big deal because uh, they're not actually protected by the Second Amendment. So we're going to get into the specifics of this trial and the counter-arguments that the uh, plaintiffs have been making this week. Uh, but before we do that, you know, when you make choices about where to put your hard-earned dollars, you are supporting not only the company that made the product, but the values and the principles of that organization as well. It's easier to flip a switch against a company when they blatantly conflict with your values, as we have seen across the consumer spectrum recently. But do you make an effort to do business with the companies that support what you believe when you can? Well, do yourself a favor and give my friends at Defender Ammunition Company a shot. These guys are veteran-owned and operated. Every person on their staff is military-connected. They are huge supporters of the military community. They are backing causes that are actually making a difference in the lives of those that have served. In fact, the profits from all of their logoed gear goes directly to the charities that they support. This company is one to support as well. Their ammo, top-notch, customer service is fantastic. What other shipping department writes handwritten thank-you notes to their customers? Give Defender Ammunition a try. Uh, I tell you, once you have given these guys a shot, you will not be going anywhere else. You can check them out at DefenderAmmunition.com. Again, that's DefenderAmmunition.com. Dot com. So in this trial over a measure 114, uh, we're actually really only getting half of the trial uh, because Judge Immergut has ruled that since the permit to purchase process has not yet put in, uh, been put in place, despite the fact, by the way, that uh, the backers of measure 114 said, oh, this system would be ready to go. As soon as the measure is approved, man, we can roll it out. And then it was, well, it's going to take a couple of months. Maybe by February, we'll, we'll have it ready to go. Maybe by March, uh, it'll be ready to go. Now, here it is June. The pistol purchase permitting process is not yet in place. And so Judge Immergut has said, uh, in essence, that that issue is not ripe to challenge, that you have to wait until the state actually imposes this pistol purchase permitting system and then perhaps you could raise a constitutional challenge. But uh, right now, that would be premature. Yeah, I know. So the bulk of this trial uh, taking place in Portland this week um, has to do with the ban on large capacity magazines. As the uh, Oregon Public Radio reports, among the more than two dozen legal questions that uh, Immergut asked the parties to address this week, two 
especially critical as she decides whether or not Measure 114 is constitutional. One concerns whether magazines are considered, quote, bearable arms. The other asks whether mass shootings constitute, quote, an unprecedented societal concern. If magazines are found to be arms and not an accessory, as the OPB writes, that could make them harder to regulate. And if mass shootings are found to be a significantly new public safety concern, that could justify tighter regulation of firearms under the Second Amendment. Remember, the uh, Supreme Court in Bruin uh, basically said that, listen, if you're looking to impose gun control laws, they have to have some sort of historical analog to laws that were in place in 1791 um, or maybe to a lesser extent 1868 when the 14th Amendment uh, was ratified. But these unprecedented societal concerns that uh, Immergutz has, has suggested would justify a ban on magazines um, related to mass shootings. Unfortunately, mass shootings have taken place for a long time. As uh, Amy Swear of the Heritage Foundation recently pointed out in a uh, Twitter thread, she was highlighting cases from 1910, uh, even earlier. And not cases where, you know, again, two or three people have been shot, but where 10 people were killed by someone with a shotgun. That was the incident I remember in Georgia, for example. Mass violence is nothing new uh, in the United States or the world, quite frankly. Um, mass shootings are unfortunately nothing new in this country. Um, so the fact that, or the, the idea that this would be an unprecedented societal concern I, I, I don't I don't buy it. Violence has been a concern of the public. Well, since before the United States was even a country. Uh, but the idea that, again, we could ban commonly owned magazines. Uh, National Student Sports Foundation estimates there are somewhere north of 80 million uh, magazines in this country that can accept more than 10 rounds. To declare that uh, those things are not only unconstitutional uh, to, to, well, not protected by the Constitution, uh, but the ownership of these magazines could be criminalized, I, I think flies in the face of the uh, Bruin decision. But as uh, OPB writes, with arguments about this permitting provision limited, much of the trial so far, again, focused on whether the state can regulate magazine capacity. Uh, an attorney for the uh, parties challenging the law said during open arguments that the evidence would show most of the firearms sold in Oregon come with more than 10 rounds, come with magazines that uh, are, you know, can hold more than 10 rounds from the manufacturers. Uh, in contrast, attorneys for the state, who will now get to present their case beginning today, said that they'll show that the most popular firearms can be purchased and function with 10-round magazines. Anna Hoffman, an attorney representing the state, said their experts would show that Measure 114 is, quote, consistent with the nation's traditions of gun regulations. Now, Hoffman doesn't work for the uh, Oregon AG's office. She's employed by the law firm Markowitz Herbold. Uh, she previewed several experts that she said would focus on a range of issues, including the history of firearms as well as the effects of gun violence. She said one expert would testify that in most self-defense cases where people use a firearm, a small number, only 0.3%, fire more than 10 rounds. Nationally, she says the average is 2.2 rounds, and in Oregon, it's just 1.3 rounds. And so, I, I listen, if only 1.3 rounds are being fired in self-defense on average, well, how on earth could uh, curtailing people's uh, a right to own a magazine that can hold more than 10 rounds infringe on their right of self-defense? Well, I would say um, the statistics, first of all, A, I, I'm not sure that uh, these statistics are going to account for every armed citizen action. Secondly, the vast majority of defensive gun uses in this country don't involve pulling the trigger at all. 
So does that mean that a ban on loaded firearms, for instance, would be constitutional since in the vast majority of cases, people don't actually need to pull the trigger to protect themselves with a gun? I mean, that would be absurd, right? But that's the same rationale that the state of Oregon is using, just taken to an extreme. Meanwhile, the plaintiffs who are challenging Measure 114, including one of the named plaintiffs, uh, have testified that, you know what? Sometimes you do need more than 10 rounds. Uh, Aiden Johnson, or excuse me, Adam Johnson, uh, who was a gunsmith owner of Coat of Arms in Kaiser, Oregon, testified about an incident in May of 2006 back in Indiana where he was working as a security guard and he stopped a robbery at a convenience store. Johnson said that he was shot at twice and returned fire with 13 rounds. Shortly after, he said law enforcement arrived. He said it was ruled a justified shooting. I am alive because I had enough rounds to finish a gunfight. You know, we've had armed citizen stories here on Bearing Arms, Cam and Company, featuring multiple assailants, multiple attackers coming into people's homes, attacking them on the streets. The idea that you would have to ration out, okay, well, there are four attackers. That means, you know, I only got, uh, you know, two point however many shots per attacker. That's ridiculous. But that's the type of uh, rationing of your self-defense rights that the state of Oregon wants to put in place. One of the other plaintiffs uh, testifying uh, about the uh, impact of this new law, Sherman County Sheriff Brad Lurie. Uh, he is getting ready to retire, by the way, but he talked about the challenges that his office is facing. He said there are just six deputies to cover the community's 1,900 residents. And there are hours of the day where there is no one on duty. He said the community is so small, the residents sometimes have to assist the sheriff. And he also spoke about the polarity of AR-style rifles among the county's residents. He told the judge that ranchers use it for predator control, specifically to protect cattle from coyotes, which he says requires significantly more than 10 rounds. Lori said, I want them to be able to purchase whatever firearm they want. I want them to continue to protect themselves. Again, continue to protect themselves. And you know, Sheriff Lori talking about the lack of staffing for uh, his office, where there are, again, hours of the day where there are no deputies on duty. That's not a problem that is isolated to one particular county in rural Oregon. This is something that a lot of rural departments are dealing with, not just in Oregon, but again, all across the country. You know, big city police departments, I wrote about this at Baron Arms yesterday. I was uh, talking about uh, what happened in Richmond, Virginia, in this uh, shooting outside of a high school graduation. Uh, and Gifford's trying to uh, blame this on the lack of gun control laws in Virginia, as opposed to the uh, absolute mess that the mayor and city council have made of Richmond. Richmond has a uh, supposed to have a police force of about 750 officers. They are down about 150 officers right now in Richmond, Virginia. And again, extrapolate that to a department that normally is staffed with, let's say, 20 deputies. If they're seeing that same staffing shortfall, right, we're talking again about losing a quarter, maybe a third of the department. What do you do in those circumstances when you have 15 deputies or 10 deputies or six deputies in the case of Sherman County? You've got to cover three shifts a day, seven days a week, and you've got to provide coverage for, again, that entire county, your entire jurisdiction. Something has to give. You know, there's a finite amount of resources for these law enforcement agencies. And again, in a lot of rural places, that means that there will be hours of the day, perhaps all night, perhaps from, you know, 2 to 11, 
maybe 7 a.m. to to 3 p.m., maybe that's the quiet part of the day, where there are no deputies on patrol. Now, if there's an incident, you call the sheriff's department, maybe they'll have somebody be able to come out. Maybe the state police will be an option. But again, the response times are not going to be what you would expect or what you would need in an emergency. Not because police are lollygagging, but because the numbers simply aren't there. We know that the courts have said that the police do not have a duty to protect us as individuals in the first place, right? They have a duty to protect and serve the community, but they're not our personal bodyguards. Ultimately, our security is our responsibility. And again, as the sheriff says, he wants the residents of Sherman County to be able to protect themselves, to continue to be able to protect themselves. State of Oregon says, well, we want you to be able to protect yourself in theory. But, you know, if it's five against one, we want you to be outnumbered. We want you to be outgunned. We want you to be unable to take on that threat because, well, we think we're better off as a society if you can't own a 17 or a 20 round magazine. The uh, plaintiffs have rested their uh, uh, case here. So now the uh, defense will uh, take the stand in the waning days of the trial. The good news is that, because I, I got to say, I, I, I don't have high hopes for Judge Emmergut here. I really don't. Based on her decision in the uh, to deny a preliminary injunction, actually it was a temporary restraining order. Um, I don't want to say that the fix is in, but I think going into this trial, she had uh, largely made up her mind that she was going to allow this magazine ban to stand. But the good news is that even if that's her ruling, Measure 114 will not take effect immediately. Uh, there is also, there is an injunction against Measure 114 that was uh, placed by a Harney County judge. That case is scheduled to go to trial in September. Uh, and it looks like that preliminary injunction will stand through that trial so you've got these sort of dual track cases here, one in the state court system, one in the federal court system. Uh, and even if Immergut says, uh, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, Measure 114 is perfectly fine and valid, that does not mean that it will take effect right away. We still have that uh, state challenge that the uh, state of Oregon is going to have to contend with, and that should provide some protection for gun owners going forward, uh, even if Immergut rules against the plaintiffs in this case, as I hope she does not, but as I have a sneaking suspicion, she will. Uh, And then, of course, uh, once Immigrant's ruling comes down, one way or the other, whoever loses is going to appeal this to the Ninth Circuit. Uh, Whoever loses there is going to appeal this to the U.S. Supreme Court. And hopefully by the time this case gets to SCOTUS, SCOTUS has already weighed in on uh, things like a ban on so-called assault weapons or large-capacity magazines. We will definitely keep our eyes uh, peeled on the latest developments out of Oregon. We'll bring any more details as they become available, but uh, I would expect a decision from Judge Immergut uh, maybe as early as next week. Uh, I don't think it'll be too long, but the case is expected to uh, to wrap up uh, on Friday, and uh, I expect the judge would want to have a couple of days even if she already has made up her mind, I think she'll want to have a couple of days, give it the weekend, just so it doesn't look like the fix was in. And again, I think we'll uh, likely see a decision as early as next week, could be even longer. All right, let's turn our attention to today's Armed citizen story, our good deed of the day, and our recidivist report. Actually, before we do that, I know you guys have definitely noticed that the U.S. dollar continues to buy less. Last year, the average IRA and 401k balance fell by more than 20%. If we've learned anything from the past few years, is that anything can and will happen. Here's something that might help. A gold IRA. Gold may be a great option for you. That's right. Physical gold in your IRA 
Many central banks are buying tons right now. What does that tell you? Augusta Precious Metals is a gold IRA company that offers its customers the opportunity to invest in gold. You can call Augusta Precious Metals and learn how a gold IRA can help you. If you've saved 100000 or more for retirement, call Augusta Precious Metals and get their free ultimate guide to gold IRAs. Tell them you heard it here on our show, and they'll give you a free gold coin when you open a gold IRA. Contact Augusta Precious Metals and diversify your retirement today. Call 855-222-4997. That's 855-222-4997. Again, Augusta Precious Metals at 855-222-4997. All right, so we'll get to our recidivist report first. This is from the uh, website CWB Chicago. Second man charged with robbing a downtown store while on bail probation, and parole. How about that? Hit the uh, criminal justice trifecta there in uh, Chicago. 19-year-old Christopher Peters, yeah, just 19 years of age, on bail for a pending stolen motor vehicle case, according to CWB Chicago, on juvenile parole for a burglary in Will County, and on juvenile probation for possessing a stolen motor vehicle when prosecutors say he helped rob the Americana submarine and tobacco shop back on April the 20th. Peters was in court for a bail hearing on Wednesday afternoon, and the assistant state's attorney, Lorraine Scaduto, told Judge David Kelly that Peters, uh, Peters entered the store with several other people, including 18-year-old Trayvon Brown, prosecutors charged Brown last month. When the clerk went to grab an item that a member of the group uh, said that he wanted to buy, the mob started running out with basically all of the store's merchandise. During the mayhem, Prosecutors say Brown jumped behind the counter, grabbed some tobacco products, while three or four other accomplices pushed the employee. Someone in the group, uh, not Brown or Peters, according to the uh, assistant state's attorney, then stabbed the cashier in the head and arm, causing him to uh, lose a lot of blood, thankfully not lose his life. Peters, according to prosecutors, ended up stealing two Gatorades during the raid, tried to take cash from the register, but uh, Brown had apparently already taken the money, according to the uh, prosecutor. Chicago Transit Authority video showed the group boarding a red line train with items taken from the store, including lottery tickets, cash, and tobacco. Scudito said Chicago police officers recognized Peters and Brown from surveillance images of the crew. They said they'd been looking for Peters for a while. They ended up finding him in the Cook County Jail. He'd been there since April 24th after getting scooped up on a warrant because he stopped showing up in court for the stolen motor vehicle case. So despite the fact that you got somebody who is, again, on probation and on bond and on probation and on parole, <laughs> you would think that this might be enough for a judge to say, all right, you know what? You seem to pose a continuing threat to the community here. Um, we're going to hold you without bond until your trial. Nope. Not the case in Cook County. Judge David Kelly ordered him to pay a $50,000 bail deposit, and then he could be released on electronic monitoring. Now, we've reported before, there have been a number of suspects in Chicago this year who have been arrested and charged with additional crimes, some of them violent crimes, while they're on electronic monitoring. But apparently that's what the judge is willing to do, and not the first time. As CWB Chicago reports, Kelly's also the judge who said bail for Peters in the stolen car case back in January. He was accused of taking car keys from a woman's home and then driving away in her vehicle. January 11th, Kelly allowed Peters to uh, live on electronic monitoring at a sober living facility without posting any bail whatsoever. He uh, then jumped a fence at the facility and escaped a month later, according to prosecutors. After police caught him again, a different judge ordered him held without bail and not to be placed on the sheriff's electronic monitoring program again. But on March 21st, that judge released him on his own recognizance with an ankle monitor 
from the court-operated electronic monitoring program. He then failed to show up in court on April 11th, uh, then allegedly took place, uh, took part in that uh, robbery of the tobacco shop. And uh, once again, the criminal justice system says, you know what? Just wear that monitor on your ankle and you're good to go. It's, you know, insanity, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. I don't even know if Chicago is expecting different results right now. But it is insane that they keep doing this over and over and over again while lawmakers in Springfield continue to criminalize legal gun owners who are merely exercising their fundamental right to keep and bear arms. All right. uh, Today's armed citizen story from Florida, where Travis Rudolph, former uh, Florida State NFL player, found not guilty of murder and attempted murder. In a case that went to trial, a jury of Rudolph's peers deliberated for four hours before finding him not guilty of first-degree murder in a fatal shooting outside of his home in uh, Lake Park, Florida, back in April of 2021. Uh, Now, in this case, Rudolph acknowledged that uh, he and his girlfriend at the time had gotten into an argument. Uh, She apparently slapped him. She says that uh, he assaulted her, uh, but she left the house and apparently texted um, a relative and some friends and said uh, uh, she wanted them to come over and, well, I think she said to shoot his ass, I think was the text message. So a short time after she left the home, uh, four guys show up at Rudolph's doorstep to confront him about the argument that he had with his girlfriend. Uh, the argument uh, turned violent, Rudolph said, and he armed himself with an AR-style rifle. Prosecutors say that the men had stopped fighting Rudolph. They're actually driving away in a black Cadillac. They're about 300 feet away from his home when, the, uh, when Rudolph fired uh, 39 rounds into their car. Sebastian Jean-Jacques, a, a passenger, was killed. Uh, a man named Tyler Robinson uh, in the back of the car was wounded. Rudolph testified that both men were pointing guns back at him. Investigators said that they never found evidence to support his claim. So why did the jury only have to deliberate four hours here before finding that uh, Rudolph uh, was not guilty of first-degree murder and was acting in self-defense? A couple of problems with the prosecutor's case. Again, they claimed that uh, nobody in the car had a gun, although one individual uh, actually did admit that he had a firearm with him that night, and he actually ditched it. Um, uh, Mr. Robinson admitted to investigators that he did bring a gun, said he never took it out of his pocket during the confrontation, instead dumping it in a neighbor's yard after he had been shot. Uh, Emily Vanderland, lead investigator with the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Office, uh, testified that there was no evidence that Jean-Jacques had a gun, but, and again, this is problematic for prosecutors, she conceded that police did not search for any discarded weapons along the path that the men drove after they fled from Rudolph's home and left Robinson behind. Robinson, who did have a gun, who said, well, nobody else knew about it, but I, I, I had one. Um, defense attorneys sparred with uh, uh, the lead investigator about her uh, oversight, suggesting that a bulge in John Jack's pocket could have been a weapon and that the posture of his death grip looked like he may have died with a gun in his hand. Uh, the uh, defense attorneys also accused the... Uh, Investigator orchestrated a shoddy investigation, according to the Palm Beach Post, for the, quote, sole purpose of convicting Rudolph, uh, deriding her even after she left the witness stand for not searching for the gun that uh, Rudolph and his uh, brother swore that Jean-Jacques pointed at them. Uh, Vanderland's response to the accusation at the same time every time, she had no reason to believe that there was an additional gun. 
Well, she had no reason to believe that there was not an additional firearm either. Again, the four men in that car said, we don't have a gun, until one of them said, okay, yeah, I did. But nobody else knew about it. And again, if you're going to convict somebody of murder, it is up to the prosecutors to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that in this case, Rudolph was not in fear of his life. Absent that standard, when there is reasonable doubt, the jury must acquit at that point. And it sounds like the defense attorneys were able to raise reasonable doubt that the four men who showed up at Rudolph's door argued with him, uh, assaulted him, and then left when he grabbed the AR-style rifle were not, again, there was a reasonable doubt that, uh, that those men uh, were not armed and were helpless and simply driving away when Rudolph opened fire. Sounds like there was reasonable doubt on the part of the jurors uh, that the prosecutor's case was that airtight. Uh, and that the evidence did suggest that one or more individuals, in fact, the evidence con uh, confirms that at least one individual had a firearm. Um, and again, because of the uh, investigation, because they did not look for any additional firearms, how would the jury know whether or not there were other guns in that vehicle that night and whether or not Rudolph, again, was justified? in a shooting at the car where he said guns were pointed at him. The fact that the jury deliberated for just four hours here uh, suggests that this was not a particularly difficult decision for the uh, 12 men and women who uh, held Rudolph's fate in their hands. This wasn't something that, you know, stretched out for days. This wasn't a mistrial. Again, all 12 jurors agreed here that the uh, prosecutors had not proven their case and that uh, Rudolph reasonably uh, was acting in self-defense. After the uh, trial concluded and the uh, jury's verdict was issued, uh, Rudolph's defense attorney said he's been totally confident, more than any of us actually, that the truth was going to come out. Uh, his faith in God helped him get through this. Well, again, the uh, jury has spoken, and uh, Travis Rudolph, not guilty of murder and attempted murder, uh, hopefully. Uh, Rudolph, who says uh, his only uh, mistake that night was uh, the woman that he was hanging out with, uh, hopefully exercises better judgment, hopefully never in a uh, similar circumstance like this. Uh, but again, a jury of his peers has concluded that uh, Mr. Rudolph did not commit murder when he uh, shot and killed the men who were attacking him. Uh, all right. Uh, we're pointing a, a gun at him. Um, today's good deed of the day from Maine, where an anonymous stranger helped save the life of someone who was in an absolutely horrific car accident. 60-year-old man uh, saved Tuesday morning in Brownfield, Maine. You can see the uh, burned-out wreckage of the, uh, the car there. So, again, this was a, a very, very serious accident in, in, a, in a rural part of a rural state. So simply being in the right place at the right time is somewhat of a miracle. Being able to do the right thing, I mean, that's, that's on whoever this anonymous Good Samaritan was. The uh, 60-year-old driver uh, left the road, hit a large rock, crashed into trees before the vehicle landed on its nose and then burst into flames. The driver was initially trapped, but he was able to get himself out 
by the time he did so, however, he was on fire. Uh, according to authorities, somebody who lived nearby rushed to the scene, put out the flames on the driver. They then dragged the driver away from the vehicle, which was still on fire, stayed with him until emergency crews arrived. Uh, Oxford County Sheriff Christopher Wainwright says the person's actions, quote, without a doubt, saved the life of the individual involved. A uh, driver airlifted to a hospital with life-threatening injuries, at last report listed in critical conditions, so he is not out of the woods yet. But again, uh, thanks to that quick thinking and the swift actions of that anonymous Good Samaritan there in uh, Brownfield, Maine, he at least has a fighting chance of survival, something that would not have been the case had he not taken the actions that he did. So again, in the right place, at the right time, willing able to do the right thing. Anonymous stranger in Maine, wish we knew your name, but we can at least thank you for your very good deed. All right, that is going to do it for this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as always, and I am looking forward to being back with you on Monday of next week. Um, we are going to be, I'll give you a little preview. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking with Stephen Gattaschi, the reload. At least I believe so. About 80% confirmed on that. Also, uh, next week, gotta make, well, hang on, got to make sure I have my dates right. I, I don't want to uh, sell this, uh, pre-sell this. Oh, yeah, I got my dates right. Okay, so next week, um, we're going to be talking with the uh, founder of BioFire. That's right, the uh, the smart gun. Kai Klepfer is going to be with us. Um, you know, I have been skeptical about uh, smart guns in general. Um, certainly hostile to the idea of smart gun mandates. But uh, I, I will say, I think that Kai Klepfer has been saying the right things. You know, he came out against mandates. Uh, spoke out against the uh, New Jersey smart gun mandate, uh, signed a, uh, not a formal amicus brief, but basically a letter uh, that's like half amicus brief, kind of half press release, half amicus brief, uh, against California's Unsafe Handgun Act, which would actually prevent biofire from being sold in the state of California. I, I, I'm, I'm very curious about the, uh, the outreach that uh, Clefer is making to the 2A community. And uh, and I'm honestly, I'm, I'm a little surprised that he has agreed to come on the show. But you know what? We're going to give him a fair hearing. I, I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation uh, because I want to talk about not just the biofire pistol, but I want to talk about where biofire actually fits in the world of the Second Amendment. Leffer has been saying a lot of the right things. When those right things benefit biofire. But I, I'm very curious to know where Mr. Klepfer stands on other things like bans on assault weapons, red flag laws, under 21 gun bans, things of that nature. So hopefully we'll be able to get into that discussion with the founder of BioFire next week. I do hope that you uh, have a great weekend. Uh, don't forget, by the way, even though we won't be back with another camera company until Monday, we are constantly updating BearingArms.com with the latest Second Amendment news and information, not only myself and uh, colleague Tom Knighton, but you know, we've got uh, stuff from Ryan Petty, uh, Raji Singh, John Petrolino that'll be uh, coming up over the next few days. So please do check out the website. It is a very, very busy time. Our right to keep and bear arms. There's a lot of stuff going on. We didn't even get to uh, Gavin Newsom calling for a new constitutional amendment. But, well, not here on the show. We I did write about it at bearingarms.com. You can check that out and much more, again, at the website. If you like what you see, I'd also encourage you to become a VIP member. Just go to bearingarms.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code GUNRIGHTS, and you can get a significant savings on your VIP membership. We thank you very much for your support. It really does mean a lot. And uh, we're going to give you, as a way of saying thanks, exclusive content, news stories analysis you won't find anywhere else. 
Because again, your support really does make a difference and it truly does matter. So thank you again. All right. Enjoy the rest of your week and a good weekend in store, hopefully. Until we speak again, be well, be safe, and be free.